Be confident. Be bold. Be authentic. But don't forget to take action. This is Ordinary to Badass, where our stories empower women to step into the spotlight of their own lives and pursue what they're truly passionate about. It's time to step into the arena and become more than just extraordinary. It's time to become a badass with your host, Marie Sonneman. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass, episode number 159. In this episode, you're going to hear from Marlene Bjornsrud, and she is total badass and such an advocate for women and women's sports. Her career has spanned over 40 years in women's sports of leadership, and she has worked with nonprofits. She has done both coaching and athletic management at the collegiate level. She is such a badass, and I love how she's such an ally for women and women's sports. Um, and she was also recognized with by the International Olympic Committee with the prestigious 2013 Women in Sports Award for the continent of the Americas. Now, Marlene and I talk about so many cool things, like what it's like to be the only woman in the room um, when you're around a bunch of men and you have to be the one to speak up. And then she has this concept called fit, feeling images and thoughts. And you make sure all of those things are in alignment. And then Marlene shares how she has always attempted to do stuff that someone else has never done. So make sure you listen to this episode. It's so stinking good. And there's so many good takeaways. If you're loving the Ordinary to Badass podcast, I would be so grateful if you headed on over to iTunes and left a five-star rating and review. Every review counts. That way, other badasses just like you can find the show. And then, of course, screenshot it and send it to me on Instagram, at Ordinary to Badass, so that I can say thank you. Every review matters, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day um, just to leave a review. All right, let's get to the episode. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass. Whether you're ordinary or badass, I'm so glad you're here. Today's guest is, Mar- is Marlene Bjornsrud. Marlene, thank you so much for being here. Excited to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So before we go any further, I've got to ask you, do you consider yourself to be ordinary or badass? <laughs> is there such a thing as in between? <laughs> or is, can I be an ordinary badass? You can be whatever you want, but I think you're badass. <laughs> well, I uh, I consider myself just a human being trying to do some things that make a difference for women and girls. Um, and sometimes that is badass. You know, when you talk about doing things that maybe uh, haven't been done before or sitting in a room with all males who look at things one way and and you have to have the courage to verbalize there's another way to look at things or to do things. Um, I've had lots of badass moments and that's been good. I love it. Can you give us an example of a time where you were sitting in the room and had to have the courage to say something? Mm, yes. Uh, you know, years and years and years ago when I first 
first started in college athletics, um, I was often the only female in the room in a decision-making way. Uh, the I was in the sports realm in college athletics. The NCAA, which is the national governing body of college sport, had determined that every institution had to have one woman uh, called the senior woman administrator who would oversee and somewhat stand as a guardian for women so that there would be at least a move towards equitable treatment. Uh, so I got to be that first woman to, to go into meetings with all male athletic directors um, and listen and consider and voice what I felt uh, represented women and girls. Um, I made a mistake, which was really interesting early on because after, after one of the all-day meetings, we were in a different city from, from where I lived. And after the meetings, all the guys broke out bottles of wine and cigars. And it was just that time to sit around and smoke cigars and drink wine. And um, I wasn't a pro at either. But my, my thought, since this was my first go-around, I was very young, I thought, okay, you just do what they do. Um, and I don't know if it was the wine or the cigars, but I got so sick that I had to leave the room and could hardly pull myself out of bed for meetings the next day. So what I learned, and I think this is important, what I learned is you don't have to be like them. You don't have to behave like them. You don't even have to think like they do, and they and them meaning males in college athletics. You do have to be exactly who you are. You need to be authentic. You need to keep hanging on to who you are and use your voice. And, um, and I think I learned a hard lesson, but a really important lesson really early on to be myself and that that's where my power would come from. Oh, I love that. It can be so hard, especially the first time or the second time in those type of experiences, you know, where you're stepping out of your comfort zone and whether you feel like you're the only woman or you're the only person of your race or, you know, it can just, it can be difficult. So navigating that can be hard, but I love what you said about um, finding your voice and being authentically you. So- and you know what? That goes on forever. I mean, you know, that experience happened when I was in my early 20s. Um, you know, I'm I'm pushing towards 70 now. And there are still times, and not just in male-female dynamics, but um, sometimes I've found being a voice for the LGBTQ community, um, being a voice for my Black sisters, um, you know, just so many different opportunities. And I always have to go back to authenticity is your power. If there's one thing that is your superpower or my superpower, it's my authenticity and being fully who I am and comfortable with who I am. So uh, good lessons that go on forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so. What's one thing that you say to yourself 
or like when you get nervous or when you're like, should I say something? Is there anything that you say to yourself to propel yourself to actually speak up? <laughs> um, you know, I used to speak up without thinking. Uh, <laughs> then I learned a little bit more about mindfulness. Uh, and what I actually have taken now uh, is, is a, the practice of the pause and the power of the pause. So I will try to, in every situation, try to create a gap between whatever the conversation is and what I'm going to say. And that gap, um, I've become pretty adept at being able to really quickly check my feelings, my images of what I'm seeing of myself and the people in the room, and my thoughts. So it's, it's what a friend of mine calls the FIT practice, F-I-T. And see, are your feelings, your images, and your thoughts in alignment with each other? And then speak. So um, that gap is important. Uh, and it helps me to respond rather than react. Um, I, had, I had developed <laughs> a nickname, and I didn't even know this, but coaches, when I had become an athletic administrator, there were some male coaches that called me the silent assassin. <laughs> and I didn't know that they did that until one of them, who had actually, you know, we ended up being pretty good friends, but he said, he said, I call you that because you never know what's, what you're going to, how you're going to react. And that caught me so off guard. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to be that person. I, I want to be, re, I want to respond, which means I want to be responsible. Um, and I don't want to be reactionary. So creating that gap has been really helpful for me. And it sounds like it would take forever, you know, kind of this, what am I feeling? It takes me back to Ellen DeGeneres at one point in her crazy show and, and she mimics what it's like to be in her head. And, you know, so I'm thinking I'm going, people are looking at me like, what's she doing? But it's not that. It's very smooth. It's very peaceful. It's very quick to just be able to say, ah, I'm feeling that. My image is this, and my thoughts are this. If they're in alignment, speak. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm loving this conversation already. I can't wait to dig in more. But first, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> what would you like to know? <laughs> tell us about your history, your history with women's sports. Um, you know, I, I grew up before Title IX, and Title IX is the federal law which requires all institutions to provide equal opportunities to the underrepresented gender. For the most part, underrepresented would mean females in lots of institutions. So I was pre-Title IX, which meant that nobody had to offer me any possibility of playing sports. They could have a thousand guys on sports teams and 10 on females, and, and that was okay. It's not okay anymore. Um, and I came through that generation and that time where we didn't have opportunity. Uh, I was lucky in high school in Colorado Springs to have a wonderful coach who was just kind of breaking into coaching. I was, she was a first year coach. I was a first year player. 
Um, she was very inspirational to me and became that and became coach, mentor, friend over 50 years time. Um, so she inspired me to play. Uh, I then moved from Colorado to Phoenix. Um, there still were no women's sports programs where I went to college. So I played on my own and developed my own skills. Um, and it was probably in 1978, I believe, I got a call from a university in Phoenix called Grand Canyon College. And they had begun to have to implement Title IX and create opportunities for women and asked if I would take on their tennis program. So I did. Uh, I had become an okay player, but I always saw myself more as a better coach. And I took on that program and thankfully we won the national championship in 1981. That kind of set me on a different trajectory and got to do all sorts of things, eventually moved into athletic administration and worked for a great athletic director who said, now your job is to coach coaches. And he said, I want you to, to find out and see ways that we can make them wildly successful. And his one caveat is it can't be all about money. And I appreciated that because I now, when you look at college athletics, it appears to be this arms race that has millions of dollar signs. Um, I was trained that there are many ways you can motivate, encourage, inspire, um, and lead to success without it just being about money. So I uh, moved into athletic administration somewhere down the road, uh, decided to move to California, worked at an institution called Santa Clara University. Um, and in 1999, when I was the uh, senior woman administrator and athletic, uh, assistant athletic director there, it happened to be the Women's World Cup, which in soccer is the platform. It's the biggest event in all the world for women's soccer. That year, it happened to be in our country. And I had been working with one of those athletes named Brandy Chapman. And Brandy was the one for people who would remember that 1999 Women's World Cup. At the end uh, of taking penalty kicks, she took that final kick to win the title for the US. She ripped off her jersey, which the women did often in practice, but nobody had ever seen it. But Brandy ripped off this jersey and um, became iconic for women all around the world, not just soccer but for women and girls everywhere, feeling like the weight of the world of this battle for visibility and equity that someone finally broke through. Um, and Brandy asked if I would come along and help her and her teammates, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Carla Overbeck, those great women from the 99 team, if I would help them form the first ever women's pro soccer league in our country. Maybe that's kind of the badass in me is that I love new opportunity and I love attempting to do something no one's ever done. So when there was this weighing out of a secure, wonderful job in college athletics that I could probably have till the day I took my last breath or trying something brand new that no one had ever done, it was very natural for me to go to the brand new 
Um, so Brandy, I did that. We had a, a great run. It was the first ever week in our country. Unfortunately, what happened on 9-11 with the attacks of the terrorists on our country, our league was one of the things that had to go away. Investors, as, as you know, everybody began tightening their belts, pulling their resources, and women's sport all over the country um, lost ground. So Brandy and uh, Julie Foudy and I took that opportunity, though, to create a new nonprofit called the Bay Area Women's Sports Initiative, with the focus that there are so many vulnerable little girls in living in high poverty communities who will never have the opportunity to play sport, probably to go to college. They're at risk for uh, obesity, uh, early pregnancy, drug use, gang involvement, all those things. And we thought, let's take the power of women athletes to those little girls and begin this kind of relationship building between an athlete who has this wonderful platform and the little girl who needs to actually see with her own eyes what she could become. Um, so we started with just an idea and somebody very quickly said, Bay Area Women's Sports Initiative, the acronym B-A-W-S-I would be pronounced bossy. And she said, that's perfect for something you and Brandy would create, because that's who you both are. And my thought was, no, then we need to change the name. Brandy said, oh, no, we don't. Now let's get our bossy selves out there and change the world. So fast forward now, about 20 years, um, bossy has impacted the lives of probably 30,000 little girls in the Bay Area and engaged over 3,000 female athletes to volunteer their time. Nobody's paid their volunteers to come be active role models in the lives of these little girls. Um, that, that's my legacy. Since, since that time, I've done a lot of work in uh, helping colleges understand the importance of hiring women to coach their women's teams. Um, you know, in 1972, when Title IX was passed as a federal law, 98% of women's college teams were coached by women. We're now at 48%. So it's this unintended consequence that once those positions became paid positions before Title IX, very few women were paid to coach. Then they became paid and the men wanted those positions. So it opened paid coaching positions. It doubled the number of opportunities for men and women got moved to the sidelines. So I spent a couple years, more than a couple years, working in that realm. Um, and now I'm considered retired, um, but because I live in Colorado Springs, which is Olympic City, USA, there's lots of opportunity to again work here on behalf of women and girls in sport. Sometimes in little consulting gigs and sometimes just because I love it. I love it. So good, man. You've done so much. It's so amazing and inspirational. I could see somebody from the outside being like, Oh, but that's Marlene. That's not me. You know, I couldn't do that. Or I couldn't make all those things happen. What do you attribute that to? Like all the things that you have accomplished? 
Uh, you know, I never set out to do hardly any of these things, which is interesting. Um, I, I deeply believe that anyone who has an intention of leaving the world a little better than they found it will do that. And it doesn't have to be big things. You know, my path just happened to include, you know, helping Japan found their first Japanese Women Coaches Academy and being a part of their growth and development. I, I was just in the right place in the right time to be invited to go to Qatar as one of only two Western women to address all the Middle East leaders about the importance of women playing sport. Um, those are not things I ever sought. They're things that came my way and I was, I was learned at a very, very early age to keep my eyes and ears wide open for opportunity. And as I've done that and been committed to it, opportunity has, has come my way. Uh, but you know what? I, I believe it comes everybody's way. I, I mean, when I think of you and what you're doing, you started with a dream to have this podcast. And that's where any good thing starts. Just kind of having that dream, that intention, and seeing what happens. Not forcing it to happen, but letting letting the universe, letting you know the powers that be bring things into your path. Um, so I I don't consider myself as special. I do consider myself as very grateful to have had special opportunity come my way. Yeah, and I think. It is important that you were raised that like to think that opportunity was possible or opportunity would come your way. Um, I've noticed that at certain times in my life when I wasn't necessarily open to opportunity or it's like down on my self-confidence, then stuff could be right in front of my face and I would not see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that true? It, it's, it's can put a blinder on you. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I've been lucky and really gifted with some good people in my life. Some who have popped into my life and stayed for years and some who pop in for an hour and then I never see them again. But people who really enter every day with eyes wide open. And, I, you know, I, I just, I'm just really thankful that early on there were some people in my life that that would teach me that. Just keep your eyes open, you know. Don't get stuck. My my very best friend from high school, um, you know, we graduated 50, 50 years ago. You know, so it's a long time, and we're still in very close contact. And, she will oftentimes say, gosh, you know, I look at your life and all you've done and I, I feel like I've not done as much. Well, here's the difference. She has very strong special gifts that impact the lives of children, especially those in foster care and in really tough situations. And she's just hunkered and bunkered down doing that work day in and day out. And I look at her and I just say, Jill, you know, look at the depth of impact you've had. 
And sometimes I feel like my impact is much, it's broad, but not always has it gone deep. Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. So I have great appreciation for what she's done. And, you know, I just, I just think it's something that she saw early on, said, I'm going to do this. And, you know, she's a, she became a single mom with four kids. And yet when, once her kids were fully grown, she was 62 years old. She looked at herself and just said, you know what, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to foster a child because I know how important it is. I'm going to do that. Within three years, she fully adopted that little girl. And now as you know, as a 68, almost 69 year old, she's got a six year old. I love that. I, you know, I'm gonna talk about badass. That the kind of courage it took for her to do that and just say, I'm gonna make a dent in the challenge that I see that children have. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this personally. So all of us, all of us, everyone can find something to do. Yeah, no, I agree. And then that kind of emphasizes the point too, like it's never too late. We always think we're too old, we're too young, you know, and like, oh, my time has passed. <laughs> but it's like, there, we don't ever have a in-between point, you know, or like, this is the perfect age. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know what the reality is, we only have today. There's not a guarantee. Yes. We can't go back in time. We know that. But we oftentimes will think, futuristic all the time and wonder when the time's going to come to do this or do that. We don't have tomorrow. We, we, we may, and we may not. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I learned that in right at the beginning of the pandemic, my coach who I mentioned earlier, this amazing woman who inspired me when I was 16 and was inspiring me equally when I was 68. Um, you know, now that I'm back in Colorado Springs, we she became my hiking coach and we were hiking all over and I was going to hike Pikes Peak. And, I, and, you know, she called me one day and said, I need, I have something to tell you and I want to do it in person. And I thought, mm, this doesn't sound very good and got there and um, I knew she was a cancer survivor and I figured her breast cancer had come back. But this time it wasn't, it was pancreatic cancer in its late stage. And she asked if, you know, if I would walk that path with her. And I said, yes. Um, I said, I, I will do anything for you. And she just said, I need a quarterback. I need someone that's going to come to every appointment. It's going to help rally people around. I need someone to call the plays. And I said, Chris, with all due respect, can I be something else? Women don't play football very many, many ways. There's some. And I said, can I be something else? And she said, no, I want you to be my quarterback. So I was, and unfortunately, from the time she was diagnosed to the time she died was only 70 days. Mm. Just this crystal clear reminder to me of how important it is to make a decision every day that betters the world and betters who I am. I want to, I want to become better. I want to become a better human being, and I and I want to do better work in the world. Um, and going through that loss is the greatest reminder that right now, this minute, 
is the time, not tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm sure she was one of your, or from what you've said, she was one of your mentors along the way. And you've talked about having the right people in your life. Can you share why it's so important to have a mentor or the right people in your life? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've thought so much about this lately because I don't, I don't use the word mentor lightly. I've never, well, I think because I've only had one and I had one for 50 years and she was extraordinary. Um, So, you know, people will talk about mentor programs and getting a mentor for six weeks. I, I get that in my head. My heart wishes there was a different word because to me, um, you know, whoever you can glean from becomes your teacher or your mentor. Um, and if you can find someone and it's natural and it's reciprocal and it's mutually beneficial to walk a longer path with, then I, I think you do it because Chris was able to really call me on some things because she knew me. And, and she would be able to say very gently, she, she would always mentor in a question way, not in a telling way. She doesn't give advice. She just asks questions, good questions, so I could figure it out myself. One day when we were hiking, she said, what if you chose to take 12 full months and not accept any leadership roles? What would you do with that time instead? Well, two hours later, we're still talking about it. And I took that challenge. I, I, I said no to everything that came my way for a year. I just paused and grew and read and meditated and prayed and took that time from doing to being. So, you know, I think, I think mentors and teachers come in all forms and shapes. Uh, I think it's really important for women in particular to have someone walk alongside you in some kind of knowing, committed capacity for either short-term or long-term. You can call her a mentor. You can call her a teacher. Um, you know, teachers, having spent the last six years working in Japan with Japanese women coaches, teachers are honored, I mean, deeply. To be called a sensei, that's one of the greatest honors. In the United States, we're funny about teachers. You know, we don't pay them well. Um, but I've learned that that word teacher is honorable and has depth to it. So I've tended to think, find yourself a teacher. <laughs> yes. And yes. Get into that relationship and see how you can grow. So earlier you talked about doing, going from doing to being, and I will be honest, that is something I'm working on right now. Cause I just like do, 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 you know, go, go, go. Um, and I definitely see the power of being, how did you go about doing that? And then how did that change your life or did it change your life? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've had that opportunity a number of times in my, uh, throughout my life, uh, partly because 
you know, if you look at my resume, you'd think, gosh, she's pretty flaky. She just, you know, jumps from job to job. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm a creator, not a maintainer. Mm. And so I've, I've always tried to create a gap between jobs, between opportunities, just to pause and stop and look at being uh, and consider a human being rather than a human doing. Mm. I read a lot. I, I have this wonderful advantage that I, I wake up before the sun every day. I, I don't remember the last time I've, I've set an alarm. I just wake up. Um, you and I have a mutual friend, Mike Bechtel, who does the same, you know. He's up very early too. I find it the best part of the day and the part of the day where I am most in touch with being. And I usually have about 90 minutes before the rest of the house gets up. Um, so I, it's very intentional. It it's includes some readings. It includes some meditation. Um, it includes holding people who I dearly love who are sick, and I don't I don't know why that's drawn me, but it is part of my being to to hold them. Mm. I found this. There's a twelve people, and I found this little bracelet at the Garden of the Gods, and it just happens to have twelve colorful beads, as well as the so all day long I can remember uh, you know Kathy is this bead and Dave is this bead that I think that's part of being and, and being a human being that is important to me because it makes me feel I'm on the same level ground as they are I am up I'm able to be hiking, walking, riding bikes. I can I can do all these things, but I also have 12 people who are physically struggling and are having to find their identity in something else. And so when I put them myself in their shoes for those moments, changes, it, it just changes. I, I, I stop getting, you know, kind of, you know how it is when you've got a list of things to do mm -hmm. and you just feel like I've got to get going, I've got to check them off. It's just that little morning practice that keeps pulling me back and saying, let the doing wait right now. Just be. So good. So good. I love it. And I like the bracelet idea um, because it's good to have little reminders in your life of the things that are important to you. Yeah. Yeah. It is, and, and I'm not a jewelry person, so <laughs> I, uh, so it was nice to find something made of wood with just a few colorful stones, um, and it's comfortable, and it's just a good reminder. Um, you know, there's a there's a wonderful practice that one of my spiritual teachers has talked about. It's just called um, "Just Like Me." And, and it is a practice of sitting or going for a walk or sitting in a park, um, intentionally looking at everyone who passes you and saying, ah, just like me, mm. just like me. Because some of our doing is wrapped up in kind of that 
sense of creating an image and pleasing people and um, you know getting up the ladder, all those things. And there's something about you know the just like me practice of just walking around and going, huh, just like me, we're just human beings. That person has struggles, I have struggles. That person has lovely people, I have lovely people. But we're all in this together. So I hope that's a little bit helpful. Yeah, yeah. I was I guess I was just thinking, do you ever do that with people that you don't like or people that like, you know, kind of rub you the wrong way, but I don't know, maybe it can give you a new perspective of them. Yes, yes. And that's kind of the, the next step on the just like me practice. It's pretty easy to do it when you're going down the street and seeing people you don't know. And and just imagining, yeah, you know, that, that person has struggles and joys and hurts and happiness just like I do. But when it's someone who bugs you, you know, or in now, in you know, the times we live with social media and, you know, we think politics and how, you know, we've become this horribly divided country. If there's a particular leader in politics who I don't like, I'd, I'd make myself do that. And I'd be the first to say I'm not very successful <laughs> in having any change happen, but I'm, uh, but I do it anyway. Yes. Says, on it. He's just like me. He's just like me. No, that's good because sometimes I worry just of the great divide, like of the country. You know, it's so hard to see other people's side. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect, you know, or that I am like understand everybody else's opinion greatly, but. I think it is important to listen or to see just the human qualities in the other person. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard when, you know, when it comes to issues where we all have opinions, um, you know, we, and we all take sides, you know, so we feel like, oh, I've got more people on my side than they have, you know, and in reality, it's, I keep coming back to what a friend said, you know, one time, is it, is it more important to be right or to do right? And I keep thinking, for me, I know how to answer that. But boy, being right feels good too. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm right about everything, of course. So how did you navigate that? As we were talking, I realized you've probably been in a lot of rooms being the only woman in the room. And you kind of talked about that earlier, but how do you navigate not getting mad at like all of the men that might not see your way? Well, I've gotten mad. I've gotten really mad. And to tell you the truth, I've gotten even madder in rooms when it's all women. You know, I started my career as the only woman in the room. I finished my career of having no men in the room. Mm. That's been interesting because because women, well, I mean, there's I would be generalizing to to say that they're a certain way, but but we tend we have some tendencies to not just you know guys will duke it out and argue and then go have a beer, and for some reason we'll duke it out and argue and then not talk to each other for three days, and um, you know I'm I'm trying to get 
better at that and and to have less kind of attachment to an outcome being what I want it to be and have more of it be, you know, getting people around the table just to talk and to say what they think. Um, because then we come to a better decision. Somebody said, I, I love this. And it was a, a soccer coach who keeps on her desk one of those little boxes of Q-tips. And she keeps it there as a reminder, Q-T-I-P, quit taking it personal. And, you know, she'll, in her office, when her athletes are in there and they're whining about playing time or whatever, she'll just push the little box of Q-tips. And they all know, ah, yeah, I'm taking it personal. And I, and I think that's great for men and women, but I think for those of us women who um, maybe do find ourselves taking things too personally and then attaching too much to making sure that it, everything ends up going our way, I think the Q-tip thing is a great, helpful visual aid. Yeah, so... So you do it either by just remembering that or having something visually to remind you like, okay, just kind of step back, take a second. <laughs> Don't take it so personal. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, take that 30,000 foot view. All of us, all of us have been up in airplanes where you're looking down and going, ah, oh, yeah, I, I see a bigger picture now. It's not just that house. It's you know, miles of lands and hills and water. You know, I think I think if there are little ways that we can find, like Q-tips, um, to put us in the realm of seeing something from the 30,000-foot view, then it's good. It's a helpful tool. Yeah, probably takes it out of your head a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So earlier you mentioned that you're an avid book reader. Is there a book or two that are your favorite books that inspire you? <laughs> well, I have, in, and during the pandemic, I kind of made this commitment to, I, I picked six books and I have read each of them two or three times. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go deep rather than broad. Um, I loved Mark Nepo, N-E-P-O, wrote a book called 7,000 Ways to Listen. My first reading through it wasn't profound, but for some reason it felt like I'm reading it again. And I have found it to be probably one of the best set of writings that I've ever read. I love that book. Um, another friend, Gil Stafford, has written Wisdom Walking. And the reason I love that book, probably because I know Gil. And he was the baseball coach when I was the tennis coach at Grand Canyon. And we, we just became great friends and still are. Um, Gil left baseball and he became a, an Episcopal priest, but not like any priest you've ever seen. His hair is probably down it's twice as long as mine, big beard, just wears jeans and sandals. And, is just taking a really different path. And wisdom walking is kind of his his learnings from walking the Wicklow Way in Ireland every summer. It can be it can be a three hundred mile walk. Hmm. Um, 
or you can take shorter routes. It is absolutely profound in its depth about kind of learning who you are in, in and of yourself by challenging yourself physically, but that walking becomes a spiritual, mental, physical practice. It's different than running or a lot of things. So I loved wisdom walking. It really is what it says, is, is finding wisdom from your walking. Uh, love that book. And then I tend to read a lot of Pema Chodron. Pema is a Buddhist nun, an American Buddhist nun. Um, her, um, her book, and I, I can't remember exactly the title, I think it's called The Way of the Bodhisattva, which is a, a Buddhist term for someone who has committed themselves to living a life of compassion. Mm. And I have decided, I've taken that on as my, my daily readings. Um, and, and it has changed my life in terms of my focus on, I think, not just advancing women and girls in sport, which is what I'm known for, but what would it be if, if by doing that, the world becomes more compassionate? And, and I think it does, because when you have women's voice at the table, when you have women experiencing healthy competition, teamwork, um, discipline, leadership, all those things, I think, I think it has potential to change the world and make it more compassionate. So Pema's teachings have been very helpful to me. Do you do anything to incorporate the books into your life or to kind of remember the big takeaways from the book? I journal. I'm a prolific journaler <laughs> and have been. Well, my mom passed away suddenly in 1978 when I was 25 years old. Um, and I it's the only way I knew to get through that grieving was to pour myself out in writing. So I, I have done that, you know, for all these years. Um, and so what I've, what I've done lately, I have, I have that journal from especially 2019 and 20. Um, and I go back. Sometimes that's the only thing I read during the day is I'll pick it up and just write down something from one of my readings that really struck me. And often I'll give it some time of, uh, you know, why would that strike me? Because it doesn't today. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm just going, oh, I know exactly why it struck me. I had no idea that within months after kind of going, oh, that seems to resonate, that something would happen that made me go, whoa, I get it. So, uh, you know, journaling helps me keep those dots connected um, in in really a good way. And then I walk. I I walk faithfully every day, less and less for exercise and more and more for taking my mind, which is like a snow globe. And, you know, when it's all shook up, you can't see anything clearly. For me, walking and having some of my journaled thoughts 
as I walk, just kind of settles it all down and helps me see more clearly. So those are some little practices that have been useful for me. I just have to say that I loved having this conversation. Um, you've had a lot of great nuggets and takeaways that you have shared with us. So let's end with a tip to encourage women who are in the arena fighting for the life that they want. Oh boy, what is a tip that's going to make a difference? Um, you know what? I, here's what here's what's on my mind most right now as I as I am working with a lot of female coaches. I, I think it is the who. Who do you want to put yourself around? And then make it about those people. It's the what. What do you want to do? It's the where. Where do you want to do it? You know, if you want to surf, but you want to live in Minnesota, you're probably, something's not in alignment, you know. Um, the how. And the biggest one is the why. And I, I do think if, if you've got a vision and you want to make a difference and you want to follow your dream and you want to go after something, answer those who, what, where, how, and why. And I think you'll, you'll find your path, no doubt. So good. Thank you so much. How can we connect with you? You know what? That's a good question. Um, if anybody wants to connect with me, I'm easy on email. I'm, I'm not a, much of a social media. I have Facebook. You can find me, Marlene Bjornsud, on Facebook. Uh, I do answer Messenger. Um, but, you know, I, I have time in my life right now. And um, you have my email address, and you would be absolutely welcome if if there's something that's been said that resonated with someone in a conversation would help, I'm wide open to that. Thank you so much, Marlene. You've been a total badass and I've enjoyed hearing your story. <laughs> Thank you. From one badass to another. <laughs> with that, we'll end our show. To all the badass women out there waiting in the arena, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, own it and get after it. Now that you've listened to this episode of Ordinary to Badass, we want to hear from you. Go to our website, OrdinaryToBadass.com slash podcast and submit your own experience on how you took your life from ordinary to badass and get the chance to be on a future Spotlight episode of the show. That's OrdinaryToBadass.com forward slash podcast. While you're waiting for the next episode of the show, wipe off the sweat, dust off the dirt, and get back in the arena.